You're listening to audio from Pleasant Valley Community Church. For more information about Pleasant Valley, visit our website at pleasantvalley.cc. Amen. And what an encouraging story of God's grace, and we are trusting to hear many more stories like that uh, this year. Now, over the past several weeks, the Lord has just burdened my heart that the theme for this year in our church is, is supposed to be the word pursuit, pursuit, so that all of our sermon series this year are going to fall under that category of pursuing the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So today, in the next three weeks, we're going to look at this issue of pursuing God's Son, intimacy with Jesus. Then at the end of January, we're going to begin a lengthy sermon series on showing the Spirit, pursuing the Holy Spirit of God and the spiritual gifts. Then we're going to go to the Old Testament and spend time looking at pursuing God's heart in the life of David. Then we're going to go back to the book of Acts and look at pursuing God's mission, and then in the fall, pursuing God's mandate. What does it look like to be a disciple-making church? And then, when I'm looking forward to pursuing God's kingdom, Jesus, love, and politics. Buckle up for that one. That's going to be a lot. It's it's an election season, if you haven't uh, heard yet. And then pursuing God's conviction, exposing blind spots in our life that we all have. Then we're going to wrap up the year pursuing God's manger, looking at the surprising stories leading to Bethlehem. So I want to talk about this word pursuit, and what does it mean to pursue God? The dictionary defines the word pursuit as the action of following or pursuing pursuing someone or something, and I first learned what it meant to pursue someone or something in August of 2001 on the campus of Murray State University. I was standing down at the bottom of Faculty Hall talking to a fraternity brother. I'll never forget his name is Tim Travis, and I saw this long-haired girl with a navy blue AO pie jacket uh, walking up the steps to English class. I would later find out, and when I saw her, I thought she was the prettiest thing I'd ever seen in my life. We didn't raise them like that in Katie's Kentucky, where I came from. And so the thing about Annie, though, is I began to do a little research, is I realized she was a million miles out of my league, and there was no way in the world a girl like that would ever fall for a guy like me. Complicating the problem was the fact that I was the shyest guy probably on campus at Murray State University. Incredibly socially awkward, as I am now, as many of you often remind me. But in particular then, and in particular with girls, there is no way in a million years I would have ever had the courage to go up to Annie and ask her to go out with me. So I did a lot of praying in my dorm room alone, praying that God was supernaturally moving her heart and that she would just kick my dorm room door open one night, throw her arms open while I'm listening to Johnny Cash and sipping on Cherry Coke and watching the cats play, and she would just throw herself at me, not in the physical sense, but more so in the will you marry me sense. But everybody knows there's no way under God's earth that that was ever going to happen. Fellas, if you want to get the godly woman, you don't sit back in your dorm room and pray she comes to you. You got to get your rear end off the recliner, and you got to pursue her. You got to go after the girl. So that's what I started doing. I started in a very stalker-like kind of way, and I'm very unapologetically saying so, uh, figuring out where Annie was going to be at all times. And I had a couple connections through the sorority and fraternity where I would know where she's going to be, and so I would strategically find out when she was going to go to Winslow Cafeteria to eat dinner, and I would just so happen to bump into her right there in in the uh, banana section. And then I would find out what class she was going to take, and I would sign up for those classes 
By the time it was all said and done, no joke, I had the same major as Annie. I had the same minor as Annie. We lived in the same dorm room. Not, not room, same dorm. <laughs> we weren't shacking up, right? Don't be starting rumors. Uh, and we had, the same, we had the same campus ministry, same circle of friends, just like you would see in a Lifetime Movie Network. Totally stalked her, but I highly recommend it because it worked. And we've been happily married for 15 years. But the point is, Annie would have never come to me. I had to pursue her. I had to go after her. Now, what in the world does that have to do with us and God? Well, here's the thing about Pleasant Valley theologically that can be tricky for us. We believe in the sovereignty of God at Pleasant Valley because the Bible teaches that God is sovereign. And in particular, in terms of our salvation, the Bible says that God is the one that pursues us. Because Ephesians 2 says we're spiritually dead in our sins before Christ. And spiritually dead people can't get up out of a casket and go look for Jesus. Romans 3.10 says none of you have sought for God, not even one. So we didn't find Jesus if we're saved. Jesus found us. And the reason we didn't find Jesus is the Bible says we weren't looking for him because we were dead in our sins. But here's the problem with believing that scriptural teaching. Sometimes we take our theology of God pursuing us in salvation, and we over-apply that to our theology of sanctification. That's a seminary kind of fancy way of saying this. Sometimes when it comes to our relationship with Jesus and growing in Jesus, we become passive. We become complacent. And we'll quote verses like Philippians 1.6, well, he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And that's exactly right. God is the one who sanctifies and who changes us, but God calls us to do something. Sometimes we wrongly assume that because God pursues us in salvation, he's going to do all the pursuing in sanctification, but in sanctification, God calls us to pursue him. God calls us to get in the word, to get on our knees, to repent, and to go hard after him with all that we have. And this is why James chapter 4 verse 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, practically speaking, here's what that means. Sometimes when we feel distant from God, that's on us. I want to say that again. Sometimes when we feel distant from God, that's on us. Don't blame God for the distance. He says, if you seek me, you will find me. The reason some of us aren't experiencing deep intimacy with Jesus is because the extent of our Christian experience is an hour and 15 minutes on Sunday morning. We clock in, we clock out, and we wonder why we don't feel close to God. God is calling us to pursue him, to go after him. I mean, think about our church mission statement is knowing God and making God known. Our vision as a church is to saturate Owensboro with the gospel. That's why that map of Davis County is going to stay there until Jesus comes back. Every time you share the gospel, you pin a red map up thing on the, the wall to show that we're sharing the gospel and saturating the city. But think about it. We can't know God and we can't saturate this city with the gospel by just sitting on a church pew. 
It requires effort. It requires zeal. It requires passion. It requires energy that can only come that is empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And so I feel like what God is saying is that as a church, we become a little complacent. I think we've become a little complacent. Unless you think I'm throwing stones, this starts with me. I have been spiritually complacent for the past quarter, and God's uh, significantly convicted me. My prayer time has been weak. My time in the Word has been mundane and not in-depth, just kind of been going through the motions. And so I think that maybe some of you are like me. Some of you are not. Some of you are rapidly growing as Christians right now. Thank God for that. But for others of us, we've become a little spiritually complacent. And I wonder if we're a little spiritually lethargic and a little spiritually sleepy. I wonder if some of us have become spiritually lukewarm. We're not hot for Christ. We're not cold, like we're not out robbing liquor stores. So we're not just going crazy, but we're worse than that. We're somewhere in between. What is worse than being cold is being nothing. It's just being lukewarm, and it makes Jesus sick. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, if you want to turn with me. um, I think Jesus has two words for us today. I think he begins with a word of rebuke, and then he concludes with a word of invitation. So Revelation chapter 3 Verse 14, uh, Jesus is inspiring seven letters to be written to seven different churches. And we're gonna look at the last letter to the last church, the church at Laodicea. Revelation chapter three, verse number 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, and this is Christ speaking, the words of the amen, that's a capital A, that's the words of Christ the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So Jesus is the faithful and true witness. Jesus is the creator of all things, Colossians 1, John 1. Jesus is the alpha, the omega, the beginning of the end. So let's receive this word with the authority of Christ. He says in verse 15, I know your works. Now let's just Stop and ponder that for a moment, the weight of that statement. That Jesus would say to us, I know your works. I know every secret in your heart. I know every thought. I know every little hidden bit of jealousy or bitterness or lust. But more than that, Jesus knows the degree to which we really love him versus the degree to which we're just going through the motions. And we come to church and we clock in and we clock out because it's just what people do in Owensboro. Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. In other words, just be something or don't be anything for me. Stop straddling the fence with this Sunday morning only easy believism, consumeristic American Christianity that is nowhere to be found in the Bible. There is a difference in cultural religion and a true relationship with Jesus. 
And he says in verse 16, so because you are lukewarm, because you're complacent, because you're just casually going through the motions, because you won't let me wreck your heart, and you're neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Man, those are some heavy words. I mean, that's just not something you just gloss. Let's just go on and read that again. Because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, Jesus here isn't speaking to prostitutes on the street corner and to the, to the person laid up shooting up meth every night and to the people that we love to judge. Jesus is speaking to people like us. Because you're not hot or cold. You're right in between. You go to church every Sunday. You go through the motions. We got the Jesus bumper stickers and we listen to Caleb. But we're lukewarm and Jesus said it nauseates me. I'd rather you just get on board or get off board. Stop playing games. Then he says, neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, look at what Jesus is doing here. Verse 15 and 16, he uses a metaphor with hot and cold water, and of course, he's comparing that to whether they're spiritually warm or spiritually cold. Now, Jesus is the best teacher in human history, of course, and he intentionally uses this illustration because it would have resonated with them because right near Laodicea, there was the Lycus River. It was a muddy river with undrinkable water. There was a city seven miles north of Laodicea called Hierapolis that had hot springs there. Imagine how cool it would be to live in a place with hot springs. Problem is, it had to go through aqueducts to get seven miles south to Laodicea. By the time that hot water got to Laodicea, it was no longer hot. It was lukewarm. Neither did Laodicea have any cold water springs there. So every day they woke up to take their morning shower in lukewarm water. Imagine how frustrating that would have been. So when Jesus gives this illustration, they're they're tracking with him. And then look at what he does next in verse 17. So what does it mean for them to be lukewarm spiritually? Here's what it means. Jesus says, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. But you don't realize that you're wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself in the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Then he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. That's the rebuke. Jesus rebukes us in love, not because he hates us, because he loves us. That is why I think this passage is, is written to Christians primarily. Yeah, there were some non-believers in that church, like every church, but I think he's writing to Christians here because Hebrews 12 says God only disciplines his, his true children. Non-believers don't get the discipline of God, they get the judgment of God. This is discipline. He says, I rebuke you because I love you. So receive the rebuke and love from Jesus. I've been wearing the heck out of it the past few months, and it ain't fun being rebuked and disciplined by God, but it's much less fun when you don't receive it because only more is coming later. So you take the spanking or you get a bigger one later, but you take it in love because when my son years ago on Hill Avenue chased a ball and ran out into the road when the car was coming, I went and got him and I disciplined him significantly because I loved him. 
And Jesus this morning is rebuking us, Pleasant Valley, because he loves us. So let's receive it in the intent with which he gives it. And then he, though, gives an invitation in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. We always use this passage in evangelistic purposes for lost people. It can apply, of course, but that's not the point here. He's speaking to Christians. I stand at the door and knock at believers' hearts. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, most of us can hear pretty well this morning. If you got ears, listen, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, I'm gonna explain what all that means in a few minutes. Here's the context. You'll never understand the Bible until you know the context of the scriptures. There was a great Roman road running from the coast at Ephesus all the way to the inland of Asia, and this mighty Roman road ran right through the middle of, guess where? Laodicea. Laodicea was a very prominent, affluent, self-sufficient city that was known in particular for their prominence in the clothing industry and the medical industry. They were known for producing a very fine quality of soft, glossy black wool, which came from the sheep in that area that made wonderful outer clothing. So ladies, going to Laodicea would be like going to Chanel in New York City. Now, I had to Google this morning the top women's fashion places because I would have said like Fashion Bug or Target, but it's not, they were on the list. Uh, TJ Maxx wasn't in the top 20. Chanel was number one, so there you go. Going to Laodicea would be like going to the Gucci store, all right? Tracking with me? Fancy clothes, known for that. Amazon was always coming in and out of Laodicea. But they were also known for a famous school of medicine. So if the Mayo Clinic would have been back then it would have been in Laodicea. In particular, some of their doctors were so well known for their research that they had their names inscribed on the coins in that area. In particular, they were known for a special ointment that they created for diseases of the eyes. Now remember that. That's gonna be very important when we get into the illustrations Jesus gives us. But not only that, Laodicea was a very wealthy place, large banks there with a lot of money, so that one of the most well-known Roman statesmen of all time, a fellow named Cicero, he went to Laodicea to cash his checks. So just know that's going on there. This is kind of the place to be. But in A.D. 61, Laodicea was significantly damaged by a major earthquake. So think about the New Madrid fault line that starts down there in Memphis and, by the way, runs real close to here. When that thing moves one day, it's going to be significant damage. Well, that happened right there in Laodicea. But guess what? They were so wealthy and so self-sufficient and had so much money in the bank, they said no to FEMA. They refused outside relief and said, no, we're going to pay to rebuild our own city. We don't need the, the help of the federal government. We don't need Rome. We got our own dime. In fact, you can go back and, and study and see that on many of their old structures, they had the inscription, quote, out of our own resources carved in them. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? That impressive Status they had 
apparently bled over into their spiritual lives. They didn't need more money. Therefore, they thought they didn't need any more of God. Which, by the way, is why Jesus said, it is almost impossible for a wealthy person to go to heaven. You know, Jesus said that. I think that's why Jesus doesn't give more of us, most of us more money than he does because we couldn't handle it if he did. Because who needs God when you can buy everything you think you need already without him? But because they had arrived materialistically and in the worldly sense, they thought they had arrived spiritually. We know this because Jesus says to them in verse 17, listen, why is it that he is so nauseated by this church? Look at what he says in 17. For you say, church, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing from you, God. Not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. What's Jesus' point? This is what it is. The church at Laodicea lacked spiritual self-awareness. I think a major blind spot or flaw in the American church is that many of us, and I'm at the first of the list here, I'm not throwing stones. I think we lack spiritual self-awareness. Let me say that another way. Oftentimes, we think we are a lot more spiritually mature than we actually are. And that's why we do such a good job at turning up our noses at other churches that aren't nearly as theologically astute as we are. And that's why we do such a good job of pointing out everybody else's flaws. Because we kind of think, well, I've been walking with the Lord for decades. I was born with a Bible in my lap. And we kind of think we've arrived. So listen, this is what he's getting at here. They had the biggest banks in the world at Laodicea with plenty of money, but that led them to mistakenly believe they were spiritually rich, but their spiritual arrogance blinded them to the fact that they were actually spiritually poor. Remember, they had the nicest wool clothes in the world. Everybody was styling and profiling Laodicea, So they thought they were fully clothed spiritually, but Jesus said they were actually darn near spiritually naked and immodest and inappropriate. They didn't realize it. They lacked self-awareness. Remember, they had the most famous school in the world for for, for, uh, providing medicine for the eyes. They thought they could see so well with that most recent LASIK surgery, but little did they know spiritually, their eyes were very blurry and they didn't see God nearly as clearly as they thought they did. The church saw themselves as spiritually mature, but Jesus saw something very different. And I think that it would be a scary thing if we could see the spiritual immaturity still remaining in us that Jesus can see. If we saw deep inside our hearts what Jesus could see, deep inside our hearts, it would humble us immediately. If we are not presently being humbled by God, it is because we are not presently close to God. If you're not presently growing in humility, you are distant from the Lord Jesus Christ 
because we can't get closer to a holy God and not inerrantly and naturally become more humble because the closer you get to the light, the more our sin and ugly is exposed. So I'll warn you in 2020, this call to pursue the Lord is a, is a pursuit that will wreck us and that will expose blind spots we didn't know were there. But man, we'll be better off for it if we'll take the journey. So they say in verse 17, she says, You say I'm rich, I've prospered. I need nothing. Those are some of the most dangerous words a Christian can ever say. God, I'm good spiritually. God, I don't need to pray for more of the Holy Spirit's power in my life. I'm good. God, I don't need to pray for more of your presence and your power. I'm spiritually mature. I do my Bible study every day. I go to church. I give to the church. I listen to John Piper. I read Beth Moore. I'm good, Lord. Those are the last words of people right before Jesus spits them out. I'm good. Brothers and sisters, we're not really as good as we think we are. They were spiritually complacent. They were spiritually lukewarm. Now, they, again, remember, they're not hot or cold. They didn't just take their Bibles and, like, throw them out the window. They're not chilling at the local satanic temple throwing up sacrifices while they listen to Marilyn Manson in the background. Don't think about crazy stuff. These are people who still read their Bibles probably. But they didn't remember the last time they shared the gospel with someone. Brother and sister, you can read the Bible till the cows come home. But if it doesn't lead us to share the gospel in our city, what are we doing? Then we're reading the Bible for head knowledge, not life transformation. God gives us his word, not so that we can get smarter, but so that we can change the world. And he wants to use us to become more like him. These people were complacent. They still said their daily prayers. It's not like they were cursing God every night. They still prayed. But they didn't remember the last time they fasted and prayed. Because Jesus said some of those demons, disciples, only come out through prayer and fasting. Some of us got crap going on in our life. And we throw up these cheap little prayers and we wonder why things aren't changing. Sometimes God calls us to get low and to fast and to pray and to seek heaven with all that we have. They didn't remember the last time they were in tears over their sin. They weren't pleading with God for revival in their church and land. Who needs revival? We're Americans. Kentucky's winning. I got my guy in the White House, or I hope too soon, and the bills are paid, and my marriage is good. Who needs revival in the land? We're good. Got vacation coming up in a month, we're good. Complacency. They, they would tell people they would pray for them, but they actually remembered to pray for that person. Anybody ever been guilty of that? It's hard. They spent more time criticizing their church than they did praying for their church. They came in and they paid their dues and they went through the motions because that's what good Christians do. But they were indifferent fundamentally. They were complacent. They lost passion. They lost their zeal for God. 
And the reason I know that is because exactly what Jesus says in verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Jesus wants zealous followers, not timid, passive, pew-warming followers, zealous followers. Jesus says, repent of having lost your zeal for me. I should excite you more than the fact that Kentucky beat Louisville, though that should excite you, but I should excite you more than that. Earlier in Revelation, he tells another church that they lost their first love. Right before that, the church of Sardis, he told them that they had a reputation for being alive. Which, by the way, this church has a reputation for being alive. That doesn't mean nothing what our reputation is. He says, you have a reputation for being alive, but actually, you're dead. People see the numbers in our bulletin. We're growing. 1,500 people on Easter, way over budget in the good kind of way. They're alive. Jesus says, I see your works. I don't need your numbers. I see your hearts. I see that you're not sharing the gospel in your neighborhood. I see that you're not weeping over your sin and your your kids that are unconverted. Jesus sees the real us and he's calling these churches and he's calling us to wake up enough of the lukewarmness I know your works, verse 15. I know them. You're neither hot or cold. Would that you would just be hot or cold. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Man, I've wrestled with that for years, trying to figure out what. I I don't recall any other time in Scripture where Jesus is talking about vomiting. And some translations say, what? I mean, think about it. To, To make Jesus want to vomit, there's something pretty significant going on here. What's he doing? Why? Why does spiritual complacency make Jesus sick? Have you ever thought about that? Why does not having a burning passion to know God more, why does that offend Jesus so deeply? Why does thinking we don't need more of God's presence, why does that nauseate Jesus? I think it's because Christ is inexhaustible and it's offensive to Jesus when we don't see our need for more of him. It is a slap in Jesus' face to think that we've arrived spiritually. However much of God we think we know, there's more because Christ is divine. He's deity, he's God. He's immeasurable. Hey, baby, we've been walking with Jesus for decades, but we've only scratched the surface of truly knowing who he is. He's more. He's more holy. He's more righteous. He's more loving. He's more glorious. And he's inviting us to know him more. Many of you know Pastor Danny Hinton. Love that guy. We sent him out. He planted Gospel Community Church just across the uh, city here. And Danny has scuba dived for years. He has been to some of the most beautiful places on God's planet Earth, going deep into the waters and exploring marine life and all these things. So imagine you went with Pastor Danny on a scuba diving tour, 
and you're going to go to all the oceans, the Atlantic, the Pacific, the Arctic, the Indian, and did I leave one out? I think that's all of them. Anyway, I, I did a little Googling the other day. Did you know that there are 352 quintillion gallons of ocean water? That's 352 with 18 zeros. That's almost as much as the American debt. Not quite, but almost. No, that's a lot. So just imagine, you're going to set out with Pastor Danny, and you're going to go try to explore marine life through 352 quintillion gallons of water. You could do that the rest of your life, 24-7, and by the time you die, you've only scratched the surface. You've seen a lot, but you haven't seen hardly anything compared to what's really out there. Pleasant Valley Community Church, how much deeper than the ocean is the Christ who created the ocean? Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments in his past beyond tracing out. Pleasant Valley, I think this is what God is saying to us this morning. Let's not be satisfied with where we are with Jesus. There's so much more of him to know and experience. Pursue him. Go after him with all that you have. Give your life this year to knowing him and to making him known. That is the purpose of life. It's not saving up and up so that we can retire and go to Florida a couple times a year. The purpose of life is knowing God and making God known. And if we're not giving our lives to that, we're wasting our life. We're wasting it. Our greatest need in 2020, still getting used to saying that, our greatest need is not more money, and it's not to lose more weight, and it's not more vacation time. Our greatest need in 2020 is we need more of God because we're barely scratching the surface, and we'll be in heaven 10 billion years still exploring the depths of who he is because he's God. But he invites us to know him. It's amazing. And that's why I love the heart of Jesus. I mean, imagine if we just, I shut the Bible like, all right, see y'all next week. Like, man, that's a great way to end a sermon. It's kind of walking on, that's why, you know. Jesus doesn't just leave us like kind of punching us in the face. He, in love, gives an invitation. Next. Look what he does. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me. To buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Did you say Jesus wants us to be spiritually rich? How do you get that? By coming to him. Buy from him. I want you to come to me to buy white garments so that you may clothe yourself in the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. That's the righteousness of Christ alone he wants to clothe us with and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus has an eye ointment that is better than what Mayo Clinic can make. 
through the Holy Spirit, he can wash our dirty eyes and help us to see 2020 vision of 2020 spiritually. Jesus says, come to me and have more spiritual wealth. Come to me and have more pretty spiritual clothes. Come to me and have better vision spiritually. So how do I get that? Here's how you get it. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. This is how real this is. This is what I pictured this morning. Sitting on the couch at the house with Annie and the kids, and we're uh, eating dinner. And we hear a knock on our front door. We had to hear a knock because our doorbell don't work. <laughs> Hadn't for a while. So... We're here and not. Who the heck's here at this time of day? So we go to the front door. And we open the door. And there's Jesus. And he says, I'd, I'd love to come in and eat with you. Hey, Jesus, you want to eat with me and my family? I mean, it's, Jesus, it's spaghetti. Like, it's the best we got. It's, I want to I come in and eat with you and your family. They're like, well, that would never happen. Jesus would never come to my house. Brothers and sisters, it is more real than we know. He is knocking on your door now in the spiritual realm. He is. That's what he says. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, and he will eat with me. Notice Jesus doesn't invite us to his house. He says, I'm coming to your house, but you got to open the door. Got to open the door. Jesus has been knocking for a while, some of our hearts. Jesus may not knock forever. He is inviting you and me in this congregation into a new season of intimacy with him. Why do you use the word intimacy? Look at that word eat in verse 20. I want to come in and eat with you. The Greeks had three meals represented by three different Greek words. You're going to see them on the screen. The first word there was a light breakfast. They would take a piece of dry bread, dip it in wine. That was it. Uh, kind of like our version of a Pop-Tart minus the wine, I'm hoping, at breakfast. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and then the second meal of the day was the Ariston, the midday meal. They didn't even go home for that. They stayed at work in the break room. It was like a little picnic snack, nothing fancy, a little ham sandwich, uh, maybe a little thing of applesauce or some veggie straws or something. And then you can tell who I live with. And then, uh, But then there was the Greek word deep non. That is the word in verse 20. I want to come in and, and deep non with you. It's the Greek word that referred to the final meal of the day, the grand meal at night. After dinner, you celebrate the work day is done. People come over. You linger and you fellowship and you kick your shoes off and you stay for a while and you don't eat the ham sandwich and veggie straws. Mama bust out the filet. Yeah, it's good. That's the meal Jesus refers to here in verse 20. It's not fast food. Our relationships with Jesus, some of us are settling for Taco Bell drive through I love cheesy gordita crunches. I think they'll be in heaven. 
But Jesus is inviting you to more than that. Why would you settle for beanie weenies and saltine crackers when Jesus says, I've got filet. Come in and eat with me and know me. Go deeper with me. I want to come in and stay with you this year. Stop the drive through version of Christianity. Know him. Know him this year. Don't just flippantly read through the word so we can ease our guilty conscience. Get in the word and ask God to change you through it. Get on your knees in prayer. It might mean waking up earlier. It probably will. You may have to throw the kids in front of the TV screen if you got to to get some quiet time away. But get in the word and get in God's heart and know him. Jesus is inviting us in this year in a way that we've never been in before. He is knocking. Will you open the door? I want to ask our musicians to come forward. And I want to give three practical applications to God's word today. I want to ask our Lord's Supper ushers, if they would, to go ahead and move to their places. Don't begin passing out the elements yet. Brothers and sisters, would you move to your places? And here's three words of application. Number one, I want to encourage you to get a Bible reading plan for 2020. Get a Bible reading plan. If you kind of live on your phone, you can get uh, an app. There's one, for example, called the Bible in One Year app. Every day it will shoot you the verses for the day. You don't have to look them up. And if you will read all those each day, you'll read through the whole Bible in a year. If you're like me and you're a little more old school, you just want to read straight out of the actual copy of the Word, then there's plenty of Bible reading plans. This year, I'm doing the chronological one where you read the Bible in in the uh, chronological dates it was actually written. I'm excited about that. You can Google those. Ladies, I want to encourage you to join the Truth and Grit Women's Reading Plan beginning tomorrow night, 7 o'clock, right here. You could come and read through the New Testament with some of the ladies in the church. Learn how to go deeper in God's word. Great practical application, ladies, to do that. Second thing, though, is I want to invite us for a time of prayer this Wednesday night at 630 right in here. We're not going to do them every Wednesday night this year. We're going to do them less often but more fervently. This Wednesday, 6.30, we're going to pray. We're going to seek God. And David and Kelly Taylor are going to come and lead us in worship. We're going to sing some hymns and glorify Christ. This Wednesday at 6.30, you're all invited. But finally, before we partake of the Lord's Supper, I want to just take a few moments and get low before the Lord in prayer. And I'm going to be right down here on my knees because that's where I need to be. Because God has cut the heck out of me this week with this word. And so let's repent of spiritual complacency. Let's repent of being lukewarm. Hey, if the shoe fits, wear it. If it doesn't fit, don't wear it. That's okay. But if God's convicted you at all, respond in repentance. Be zealous and repent. Ask God to give you passion for him. Some of you used to be on fire for God. Don't you wish you had that again? You can. Christ is knocking. He said, open the door. I want to eat with you and stay. So let's get low on your knees setting, standing, however you feel led. Let's pray to the Lord in Jesus' name.